You're listening to Everybody Pulls the Tarp, the go-to podcast for high performers. I'm Andrew Moses. Each week, you'll hear my thought-provoking conversations with Olympians, pro athletes, CEOs, elite coaches, best-selling authors, and other high performers to uncover their secrets to success. Get ready to be inspired each week when we talk about leadership, teamwork, work ethic, and more. Are you ready? Let's go. Hi, everyone. This week, my guest is NASCAR driver Ryan Ellis. For most of Ryan's career, he has raced part-time while maintaining other jobs outside of racing on the side in order to make ends meet and fund his racing career. He even told me that he's the only NASCAR driver he knows of that's had a full-time nine-to-five job and had to take PTO, paid time off, to go race on the weekend. Now, After many years, Ryan's racing career is at a point where he's able to dedicate almost 100% of his professional time to his racing business. But as you'll hear in our conversation, even as a full-time NASCAR driver, Ryan is still on the racetrack and behind the wheel only a small percentage of his time. That's because he still has limited infrastructure and a relatively small team. And there's a lot to do when you are a race car driver. So Ryan wears a lot of different hats that are critical to his racing operation. Ryan spends most of his time on marketing, sponsorships, and a variety of other business and administrative areas that drivers with larger teams and bigger budgets can delegate to others. Ryan and I caught up a few months ago to talk about his career and how he gets it all done. Our conversation is a great reminder that success in anything requires a willingness to roll up your sleeves and do whatever task is needed to get the job done. I really enjoyed my conversation with Ryan and hope you do as well. So let's pull the tarp and get straight to Ryan Ellis. One of the things that I find really interesting when I read your story and ran across your career is that you are a NASCAR driver, but for the most part, you know, throughout your career, you have done that part-time and balanced that with other jobs and things to kind of piece it all together. I'm curious, is that something that's very common in NASCAR to folks driving and also doing other things? Yes and no. I think there's a probably 10% of us maybe that have like a side job. Some of them are like fully dependent on them. Some, you know, they're young kids. They're like 18, 21 years old. Their kids or their parents are still helping them out financially as they're racing on the side. I think I'm the only driver that's ever had like a full-time job, like at nine to five, like I use PTO to go race in the race weekends. But yeah, this is the first year I've ever been able to just like focus only on racing when I wake up from like when I go to sleep. So this is an interesting transitional time for you. You're shifting to essentially almost nearly full-time on your racing career. What's been the biggest kind of shift in terms of how you approach things now that you can dedicate almost full-time to this? Yeah, it's... Two big things at the same time. Had a daughter last August. So the whole transitioning to racing stuff and being a dad at the same time was kind of felt like synonymous in a way. My sleep schedule's jacked up right now. I know that because, you know, I'm dealing with uh, all the normal parenting things, but at the same time, try to make the most out of like 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. and getting a lot of work done in that time frame. So not on a normal work schedule by any means, but like we've had a lot of traction. There's pretty much Every day of the week, I'm just doing sales, just, you know, doing sales for our sponsorship stuff. And 
um, either in meetings or trying to get into meetings. So it's it's given us a lot of traction, just the ability to work 40 hours a week on it, if not more, on the sales and marketing side. It's really interesting, Ryan. I want to dig into that because this show is called Everybody Pulls the Tarp. And I love uncovering stories of people who are doing the nitty-gritty, non-glamorous things that it takes to be successful. And I would imagine that a lot of people, myself included, would look at a NASCAR driver and say, okay, like, what are you doing between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m., right? I mean, you, you spend some time on the track. You spend some time with the, the pit crew. You go race. But there's so much more to it that I've uncovered as I've dug into your story thinking about our conversation. Tell me, like, what else is going on oh, in yeah. the life of being a NASCAR driver? Because now I understand there's a lot more to it. I, I want to get a better picture. Yeah. So of the 365 days in a year, I raced 11 times last year, maybe 12. Some of those are single-day shows. Some of them are two-day shows. So really, if you think about it as all two-day shows, I only had 22 days on track last year or this year. So the majority is just spent on either sponsorship activation or I had a buddy. I took a lot of interns on, speaking of everybody pulling out the tarp, and I brought in 60-something interns a few years ago. We narrowed it down to like two or three of them, and uh, two really stuck with me. And they're both like on paid commission sponsorship deals now. So I work with these two people. Um, one of them invested in a sales software with me. So that's really given me a lot of time to just hop in there and you know narrow things down by revenue, industry, and vertical, and kind of just see where they're where they could fit in. And so pretty much ninety nine percent of my job is just trying to find sponsors right now. It's very little. Like I have a simulator right here, right next to me. I turned it on yesterday for the first time in four to six months. We don't practice that often because really our success is almost 100% based on sponsorship money. See, that is so fascinating to me. I, I would have thought that there were hundreds and hundreds of hours being put in on a, on a track or in simulators, like you said, but 99.9% .9 of it for you has been the business side of it. You know, Making sure that you can kind of keep this dream alive by making sure you have, you have sponsors to fund it all. When you got into this, did you know that that's what it was? It didn't used to be like this. And I don't know what the biggest change was. Obviously, there's so many things that distract people in this world now. You know, we got Twitch and video games and everybody's watching that. They're not watching sports as much. But in the past, you could just put Tide on a race car. People liked you. They just bought Tide. Like, it doesn't work like that at all anymore. So a lot of our industry, our industry continued to get more expensive and the money kind of went down. NASCAR takes 90% of the TV revenue. The Cup Series gets 7%, Xfinity gets 2%, and trucks get 1%. So a lot of our team's expenses are highly based on sponsorship. I don't think the sport was as expensive in the past. So people were making a lot more money. Um, I had a teammate that used to make $10,000 an hour signing autographs. Man, if I, if I could do that, I'd be signing autographs all day, every day. But it's a very different industry now. We're just trying to plug away, and the sport's just very expensive. We run for a mid-pack team, and they spend thirty-five dollars to Sixty, seventy thousand dollars a week. And that's a mid-packed expended team. And that, when you say they spend, that's on the on the car and the maintenance yep. and uh, the parts and, overhead, and things, overhead, motor lease, pit crew, travel, all of that stuff adds up. And that's just per car. So we have three cars in our team. We might have three cars next year. So that's times three. I'm curious, Ryan. What led you to racing? My dad raced and my grandfather raced. So my grandfather was killed in a racing accident in 1958, the same year my father was born. So I just grew up around racing and literally all I've ever wanted to do, like by far. Does that 
so your grandfather, your grandfather was killed in a racing accident the same yeah. year your father was born and, and your father picked up racing. Don't know how. Yeah. Don't know how my grandma let that happen. <laughs> is that something that you think about a lot? Is there, I mean, it, for, to me, like a, a bystander, I mean, it looks like a very dangerous, very, very dangerous sport. Yeah. How do you process and think through all of that? I think on days that like, not like anymore, I'm not really lacking motivation. It's like pretty much like, I feel like we have so much momentum. I'm like constantly on that. I want to turn my brain off. But the days that you're feeling like you're a little lacking in the motivation department, I like go and Discovery Channel did a four or five minute piece on just like my family's history in racing and you know, like the loss of my grandfather. And that's definitely motivation for me to keep going. Because I know that I'm pursuing my family's dream. My dad wasn't able to just purely because of financials again get to the level that I was or that I'm currently at. So I'm just trying to continue that family dream along and stop it at my line because my my daughter cannot race. I will never allow that. <laughs> it is that's, too too manic, man. That's interesting. You're gonna pursue this dream and yeah. see this through, but not the next generation at this point. I'm curious when you got into it, obviously this was there was a legacy. Mm-hmm. There was people around you who knew the sport. How did you get into it? What was what were like the initial days, weeks, and months like? Were you successful right away? Yeah. I, we started when I was about four years old in go-karts and quarter midgets, which are essentially go-karts with roll cages on so you don't break your neck. And yeah, we were pretty successful off the bat. There were a lot of guys that I raced in against back then um, that were a couple years older than me, Justin Algeyer and uh, Reed Sorensen, names that are probably familiar to a lot of people that are watching racing now. And I was competing with them. We finished second and like four or five times in the national championships to people like that. Never actually won one, so it sucked. But yeah, we were pretty successful. Um, and I was always racing against like... I, when I moved to Legends Cars when I was 11 years old, um, you're racing with like full-grown adults and you know they're trying to fight you and stuff and you don't know how to handle it. it. It makes you grow up pretty quick. When you think about that, like growing up pretty quick, are there moments that you think back to in particular where you learned really tough lessons or something really kind of reinforced itself for you? It's a good question. It really is. I don't think I've ever gotten that one. I think the biggest thing I had to struggle with as a kid racing against adults was standing up for myself. And like, I mean, at the end of the day, it was like calling a bluff because I'm racing against 40, 50 year olds and I'm 11. I'm assuming they're not going to punch me in the face. (laughs) I'm assuming it's not worth it for them. But I had to learn to be aggressive. I was always kind of strategic in a way and I wanted them to make a mistake to pass them rather than move them out of the way, like actually put a bumper to them. My dad was just like sick of me running second. Like he knew if I was racing against somebody that was aggressive, I was going to probably lay over. So he was just like, wreck somebody. I don't care. So I eventually just was like, okay, I'm going to go out there and just be aggressive. And with people my age, people a few years older and like a full grown adults, I just was like, all right, I'm not going to take crap anymore because they're probably not going to beat me up. And if we do, I'll just shuffle my dad over there. Maybe he'll fight him or something. But it's something that I learned that I think a lot of kids struggle with nowadays because I don't think they're racing full-grown adults like I was back 28 years ago. That concept of sticking up for yourself and being aggressive instead of passive, have you been able to apply that to other aspects of your life? I'm still not good at it. I'm the worst negotiator in the world. That's why I have a manager. I typically will try... Like I'm so um, enthusiastic and driven to race that I'll often do like bad business deals. Like I was able to, you know, able to bring four hundred thousand dollars to sponsorship, and I might make ten k off of it. Like that's my whole earnings off of racing. I'm like, oh, I didn't plan that out very well, but I maximized the racing side. 
I've learned how to work around it and I've gotten better at it, but I don't think I'm ever going to be perfect at standing up for myself. Like if it's a physical altercation, I have no problem with that kind of stuff. But like business, I get, yeah, I get worked over pretty good. (laughs) I'm curious, Ryan, you talked a little bit about some of the ins and outs of the actual racing. I'm curious for somebody like me who who's who's not you know I'm not I don't really have a great understanding of 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 NASCAR and I, I enjoy watching you know my my grandfather was a big fan and I and I would watch NASCAR on TV and still do from time to time. What are some of the little things that are happening on the track or pre-race that you're thinking about that may seem like a small thing but have a, a big impact on your outcomes? Yeah, I think racing is just so different than other sports and. I can say that because a lot of drivers really just kind of grew up racing. and That's all they know. They might have played a little bit of baseball or a little bit of this. Like I, I played Little League stuff. Uh, I played up till high school in baseball, played ice and inline hockey. I played volleyball for a year, which is weird. But I played a lot of things. I still play beer league every three or four times a week, hockey. And the racing process is just so, so much a business. It's only a, really a sport for four to six hours, practice qualifying, and then a three to four hour race. That even five minutes before they say, gentlemen, start your engines, it's like, take this photo, shuffle this person. Hey, make sure the CMO's getting up on the pit stand. Hey, hey, do we put the pit wall banner out? So like I'm managing all of that stuff. And I do a little bit of side work with our team. So like I write the press releases for our other drivers that when I don't have sponsorship to race, we might have a different driver in that does. So I'll like write their press release. And I mean, literally we're racing tomorrow. Obviously I'm, I'm not running, but somebody could text me and be like, Hey, I, I have two guests. Can you put them in? So I put in all of our team's pit passes. It's like a very different world. You're not really able to fully focus. Like, you know, you see a football or hockey locker room, they're in their music blasting in their own world in the zone. We're like photos, autographs, introductions, just constant stuff. And then in the race car, it's just hotter than hell. Really? I mean, it's, 135 degrees in there. You're wearing a three or four layer suit, not a lot of good air, and you're battling with a lot of guys that are maniacs. So it's a tough environment. So when the race gets going, do you know pretty quickly that you're going to have a good race or if it's going to be a a challenge? How how do you you know? I'm a weird case because I suck at qualifying and practice right now. Having taken four years off to like pretty much work a day job, I'm not as good off the bat. So I'm not we might qualify like 30th or 35th, but then we'll go race and be 15th. So it's it's kind of hard to get a gauge. Our cars, and I think me specifically, I, I'm a little bit more passive still. So I'm able to make more time as tires fall off and manage that a little bit better. But you can generally get a read just off of practice charts. But the problem in racing is you could feel like you're having a really good car, really good race, and then they're like, you're 40th on the, on the charts. You don't really get a good difference or a good gauge of how fast you are without literally having a computer screen say, yeah, you're 7th or 40th. Because sometimes a good lap will feel good. A good lap will feel awful and an awful lap will feel good. It's so hard to say. I've qualified them and like, dude, that's got to be top five. And they're like, 35th. What's wrong with the car? You're like, I don't know. It's just not great this weekend. How do you make changes kind of on the, on the run, like mid-race? What goes into that? It's a lot of feel. I don't know if there's really any comparisons to other sports in that way, but there's two real conditions. It's loose and tight. Tight means the front end won't turn that much. And then loose means the front end's cutting really, really hard. So the front tires have a lot of grip and the rear can't keep up. So that's where you see people spinning out. So you're constantly looking at that balance as well as aerodynamic balance. So we pull in like little shims, like a 64th or like a little packer that just basically helps the car get clearance. 
And we can feel just based off of experience if we have maximum aerodynamic grip or if we're lacking a little bit there. So it's a lot of little adjustments. And 90% of the speed, I think, is built at the race shop, as we say, because we can't make a bad setup good in like a 15-minute practice, but we can make an okay setup pretty good. Like you can make a 20% gain, but you're not going to ever beat someone if you're way off when you unload off the trailer. So, so much of it is really in the pre-race. It happens in the shop. Yep. And we have six to eight employees on our team for a two-car team. And some of the teams we race against are three to 500 people on their team. Wow. So we're talking about, I mean, we're talking tarp pullers here. I mean, yeah. Ryan, as the story goes and you know it, you know, it's, and my, my listeners, you know, know it, you know, I, I worked in the minor leagues and I learned really quickly that the grounds crews in the minor leagues are much smaller than the grounds crews at their major league counterparts. And everybody's got to pitch in CEO, CMO, CFO, and all the interns. And it's something that's really stuck with me throughout my career. And I love working with people that I, I think of as tarp pullers, people who are just willing to pitch in and do Like you said, one day you're racing a car, the next day you're writing a press release for another, another driver on the, the team. How does the team do it? Like, what's the secret for you you know, how does a team of six or seven, eight people, whatever you said, compete against a team of 500 people? How do you kind of allocate the personnel and the resources? I think it takes a certain type of person. A lot of people that have only been at big teams, probably like people that have only worked at big companies, are used to doing this little thing here. Like we say, some of the big teams, they have like a right rear window specialist. Like we don't have that. We just got to, you got to make the most of your group. You got to know their strengths and weaknesses and you got to know what you signed up for. With our team, we're not going to have that. Like our crew chief's actively working on the car. He's, you know, working on 10 different machines throughout the week. And then he's going to push the car through tech. He's not just going to be sitting there wearing a nice clean shirt on race day. He's going to be grinding, doing everything he can. And it's the same way with everybody in our team. Like everybody plays five to 10 roles and you just got to be good at everything. And, but at the same time you play a, you know that you play a big part of success. So the ups and downs are a little bit higher, I think, because you, you wear your emotions on your sleeves and you put so much blood, sweat, and tears in there. But the highs are very high at the same time. Ryan, what advice do you have for people, you know, whether it's in racing or outside of racing, any, any business, any, any endeavor in life? How do you become more well-rounded? How do you become somebody who can be really helpful in five or six different tasks or disciplines so that you can contribute in all these really, really different ways? I think you just do it. <laughs> I know like I watch a lot of those motivational talks and I'm like, hey, the first way to step into success is just the step, right? Like you just have to be willing to do anything. And that's kind of what I learned was, you know, people are going to be willing to help you along the way and you got to be willing to help them as well. But nobody's going to care about your success more than you are. So like I work with multiple people, but there's days where I'm like, ah, you know, I, I want to make sure this gets done. So I just get in there and grind. You just put your ego, leave your ego at the door, as they say. And do whatever you can because I want to be successful. I'm not going to let anything else get in my way. And I'm sure my team's the same way. What type of message do you think it sends to the the team? You know, it's a lean team. Like you said, when pre-race, you're doing it, you know, as much as you can, you're signing autographs, you're taking pictures, you're making sure banners are hung the, the place that they're supposed to be. What message do you feel like that sends to your folks? I mean, honestly, it's two different messages depending on the person because our industry is a lot full of a lot of old school crew chiefs that were, you know, been around for 30, 40 years. Those types of people hate it. They're like, hey, focus on the race, but I can't race if my sponsors aren't happy. So, like, even my team owner, Tommy Joe Martins, we've gotten into a few times this year, not big, but it's been like, hey, like, I need this big pit box there this weekend that fits eight guests because it's going to be 100 degrees on race day. I'm like, I don't care. 
if you buy me one less set of tires and we lose a spot or two. I'd rather lose that spot or two and know that my CMO is happy with all of his guests and they're going to come back next year because they're not sweaty and miserable and they got some water. It's a weird mentality to have because you just have to look out for your long-term success, but it's the only way that you're ever going to last in this industry. I'm learning so much, Ryan. This is so interesting because to me, it's about thinking about success in the big picture. Yep. Right? I mean, conventional wisdom would say, do everything you can to get me all the tires, the best possible tires, as many of them as you can. On-track success does not lead to sponsorship. That's like the weirdest thing that people just don't... I mean, at some point it does. It helps. doesn't mean anything though, really. But again, what you've recognized and very intelligently is that without all these pieces of the equation, like nothing... There's no equation. Yeah. It doesn't matter if I finish 7th instead of 11th, if my sponsor is like, yeah, you ran good, but we... Well, this guy passed out, he's miserable, and they didn't have any snacks. Like, all right, cool. It's interesting, right? I mean, I've learned throughout my career that everything is a people business. Yep. And you know, obviously, you, you have a product, you have a service. But at the end of the day, it comes down to people and it comes down to relationships. And sometimes these things are hard to teach. It's, it's, it's stuff that's hard to impart on people. And I'm very passionate about it. I'm curious, this relationship-oriented side of you, yep. where do you think it comes from? Probably just like my mom. <laughs> I don't, in like middle school, I was voted as a peer mediator. But I think it's just, you just kind of have to know how your business works. And I think I read somewhere, I don't know if this is even true, but I said emotional intelligence is like the greatest predictor of long term business success or something like that, more so than even like general intelligence with numbers and science, anything like that. So I think just looking out for people makes them more comfortable with working with you, like especially in our industry. like my sponsors know that I'm looking out for their best interest and I'm never going to ask them to do something that I don't think will benefit them, then they'll trust me and they'll be willing to do more with me. And that's what my sponsors have been around forever, or at least learning. Like I have to call them with a weird conversation probably at least once a month, like maybe moving this race. Hey, but this will help you because you'll get this B2B intro. And you just have to like earn that trust, just like any friendship. How do you go about earning that trust? Does it just take time? Does it just require you to just keep showing up? Like, Where do you think that trust comes from that you've been able to build with these longtime sponsors? I think it's it comes somewhere between... Because I mean, our process is like, you know, I reach out to them via email, ask for a meeting, go to a meeting, blah, blah, blah. Then they come back a week later, we negotiate, sign something, then we work on a car rendering. The process can take anywhere from like 10 days to 10 months. And then after the race, we don't immediately reach out and say, hey, you want to do this race? Or, you know, I think you'll get a lot of attention if you do Daytona. It's Okay, like what did we succeed at? What did we fail at? What did you like? What did you dislike? Okay, we have these events available. We have some B2B opportunities here. Would you want to explore these rather than just like, hey, spend your money. We want $200,000, 10 races. We'd rather them do five races and do some like at track activations and paid ads, spread their money out. So I think showing that we actually don't want to just be a race car driver, so we want to like treat it like a true marketing program, I guess earns a trust. Ryan, you were talking earlier about being a new dad and and having a young daughter i have i have two i have two young daughters what was that i said i don't know if you just heard that but that was a death scream right in the middle of you saying that so that was awesome hopefully she's okay i've got two young daughters and and i think a lot about how important it is to you know whether you have sons daughters lead by example yep and do things that are going to make your children proud it, it when they talk about what their parent does and how they go about their business, that they talk about it in a way that would make you proud. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you know, before we wrap up, have you thought about that? Like, are there, if your daughter could explain to people what her dad does and how oh, he God. does it, what would you want her to say? When she gets older, I definitely just want her to pursue her dreams. And I think that's like the only example I'm trying to do is just like, hey, don't, you know, if you love something, you care about it, you'll be happier pursuing it than just riding life out and, you know, clocking in, clocking out. That's, I mean, I know I could have a much more stable financial life if I were not doing this, but I'm way happier. Like I took four years off, like I said, to just work a normal day job. I was the director of marketing public relations for a cup series team. And I just held Sharpies and scheduled PR meetings and dealt with sponsors for four years for other drivers. And you really have to put your ego away. And it's, it reminded me that like, I want to just be behind the wheel and I'm not going to let anything stop me. And I hope that she does that in whatever she does in life. Still hope it's not racing because I want to do something. If you're good at you're just successful, but that's really all I'm hoping she takes away from it. It's hard, man. Like, cause as you know, in life, there's so many ups and downs and like little things. And it's hard to not show frustration around a kid. And I know that they are just like constantly soaking everything in. And I deal with that every day for sure. I'm sure you do as well. I do. And, and, and I think about that a lot and it's easy to, you know, get kind of like have your highs and have your lows. And I think it's important to remember that you're somewhere in the middle. Right. Yeah. And, well, and to, this is how a human acts. Like, I need to do this. You're like, no, don't do this. <laughs> don't do what I'm doing. I think the message that you mentioned there about leaning into where your passions are and, and following your dreams is, is an important lesson for anybody, whether they want to pursue a career like you have in, in NASCAR racing or whatever they want to do. But I think what's so cool when you think about your story, Ryan, is just all the hats that you're wearing to kind of make this, this all go. And, and, and I think it's so neat. I've had so much fun digging into your story and I, I, I'm really just fascinated and excited to see where it all goes from here. I know you're, you're, you're right there in terms of really doing this full time and uh, you've dedicated a lot, of, a lot of time, like you said, going back to four years old, you started working on this. Yep. Here we are and, and I feel like you're just getting started. So keep pulling the tarp, keep wearing all those different hats and I'm going to have to come see you race one of these days. All right, Ryan? Yeah, we're going to get a tarp puller on the car. I can just throw that on there one week. When we're up in like Dover or Richmond, that would be cool. That would be cool. I got to come and see that, Ryan. That would be a lot of fun. Okay, we can do that for sure. We'll put you on. Ryan, I will be looking forward to that day. We'll make sure the listeners know when you're racing with the, the tarp puller on the on the car. Oh, yeah. oh, Thanks yeah. so much for pulling the tarp. And, and I, I wish you all, all the best and continued success, Ryan. Thank you. You too. Thank you for joining me this week. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you can catch all of our upcoming episodes. And if you are like me and want a world full of tarp pullers, then leave a review to help others find us. You can also follow me on Twitter at Andrew H. Moses. That's Andrew H. Moses. And be sure to sign up for my email newsletter at everybodypullsthetarp.com slash newsletter. I'll share tips and insights to help you achieve maximum success and happiness. Today's a great day to pull the tarp. I am rooting for you. See you next time.